Chapter 13 of Italian Life and Legends by Anna Cora Mollett Ritchie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Chapter 13 Adelaide Restori and Piccolomini. August 1865. Among the many celebrities who have made their homes in Florence is the renowned Italian actress Adelaide Restori, Marchioness del Grillo. The golden harvest reaped by her genius has reared upon the picturesque banks of the Arno, close to the beautiful Cassini, one of the most magnificent of modern palaces. It is built of brown stone and bears her name. The interior is lavishly decorated with superb frescoes by Gnani, who holds a prominent rank among Italian painters. The subjects represented are seeds from celebrated plagues, several from Shakespeare. She has erected another palace in Paris. Restori has thrown double luster upon the stage by her resplendent talents and the shining example of her pure life. Ennobled by marriage, though less than by nature, she moves among Italy's nobility, a proud matron, reverenced by her husband and children, and worshipped by the crowd. Her striking beauty needs no heightening at the hands of art. It is as remarkable in the drawing-room as upon the stage. Her figure is imposing, her eyes are large and brilliantly dark. Her hair is abundant and of oriental blackness. Her brow is queenly, her mouth flexible and expressive. Her bearing is characterized by native grace and dignity, and perhaps by a slight touch of hauteur. Though she has amassed a large fortune, we learn that she does not propose abandoning her profession and converting the laurels she has not ceased to gather during the twenty-five or thirty years into a couch of repose. Her last performance in Florence took place on the 12th of May, 1865, the evening before the great Dante Sexcentenary Festival. Rossi and Salvini, the most eminent of Italian actors, the Italian representatives of Shakespeare, were compelled by the imperative demands of the public to interrupt their engagements in Naples and Milan to meet Ristori in Florence. For the first time, the three brilliant luminaries shone upon the same stage. The play selected was Silvio Pellico's tragedy of Francesca da Rimini. The performance took place at the Nicolini Theatre and elicited boundless enthusiasm. Ristori periled her popularity in Italy when she acted in French to gratify a Parisian audience. It is said that the Italians openly avowed their jealous disapproval. We had the gratification of seeing her personate her first role in the French language, that of Beatrice in the Madonna of Art, written expressly for her by Messrs. Scribe and Segouvre. The rendition was full of pathos and grandeur, full of archness, fascination, and reality. The heroine is an actress, a Madonna of purity, who sacrifices all of the selfish impulses of her loving heart to the glory of her profession. 
it is said that the authors purposely depicted Ristori's own character. Her success was triumphant. What command of the French language she has obtained may be judged from the fact that her hypercritical and by no means indulgent Parisian audience applauded her to the echo, and even found a charm in the slight accent which she had not wholly conquered. The illusion of her acting has since been in some measure destroyed to us personally by our learning that she belongs to a school of art which we were never able to comprehend. We were told that it is not necessary for her to feel in order to personate feelingly. It is not necessary that her own heart and eyes should be full for her to wring the hearts and draw the tears from the eyes of others. It is said that sometimes after the grandest, most thrilling birth of pathos, when sobs resounded on every side and tears had been conjured into the eyes, even of the undemonstrative, Ristori, while her face was concealed from the audience, has found great diversion in exciting the merriment of some friend in the side scenes by the most irresistibly comic looks and gestures. If this be true, and we prefer to give it the benefit of a doubt, it proves that the gifted actress's heart may be in her art, and may not be in her role. Another highly distinguished artist, who has lent an additional charm to Florence by making the city of flowers her home, is Piccolomini, Marchioness de Gattani. We had seen her smiling a witching farewell, which had the most sweetness of a closer adieu, at the Academy of Music in New York. But her face was not less lively, her manners were not less captivating, when our acquaintance was renewed in Florence in the autumn of 1864, at her palace in the Street of the Angels, Via degli Angli, an appropriate name to designate the locality of a songstress. She had been married for years, and three cherub faces gave brightness to the room. The life of an artist has ever a touch of romance, but Piccolomini's history is enriched by more than an ordinary mingling of the romantic element. She belongs to an ancient and noble Italian family, a family which boasts of having had a pope and a cardinal among its representatives. The branch from which our artist Piccolomini sprang chanced to be very restricted in its worldly possessions, not at all an uncommon circumstance among the Italian nobility. Piccolomini invinced a passion for music and drama, even in her very babyhood. She was still a child when she conceived the project of studying seriously for the opera, that she might at once redeem the fortunes of her family, and enjoy the exercise of her gifts. She met with the amount of opposition from her proud relatives and aristocratic friends which was to be anticipated, but the force of that opposition had just as little power as might have been expected when brought to bear upon the promptings of true genius. At sixteen she made her debut at Siena, where her family resided. Her success was decided. Though she could have hardly been called brilliant, 
She studied with zeal and enthusiasm and made rapid progress in the knowledge of her art. Musicians have never been willing to award her a high rank as a vocalist. Her voice has no great compass and no startling power, but we find compensation for what it lacks in its varied and wonderful expression, in its melting sweetness, its ringing mirth, its sympathetic magnetism. She sings with her eyes. She sings with her eloquent hands. Her whole frame is fermented with the spirit of song and quivers, heightens, or bends responsive to the melody that gushes from her lips. She literally and marvelously illustrates the words of the poet. Oh, to see or hear her singing! Scarce I know which is divinest, for her looks sing too. She modulates her gestures on the tune, and her mouth stirs with song-like song, and when the notes are finest, tis her eyes that shoot out vocal light and seem to swell them on. But if musical critics will not admit that her singing is great, no one can deny that her acting is of a superlative order. During an engagement which she was fulfilling in Rome, an accident occurred which gave coloring to the rest of her life. One evening, her attention was involuntarily attracted to a young gentleman who always sat close to the stage, apparently absorbed in the performance. Night after night, he occupied the same seat. He sat motionless, entranced as one in a dream, never addressing anyone near him, never glancing at the audience, never moving his eyes from the face of Piccolomini. And night after night, when she entered upon the scene, her eyes unconsciously turned to see that well-known seat was filled, and filled by him. Soon she forgot the audience. She thought but of him, saying only to him. She had not the remotest idea who he was. She had meant that they would ever meet. But he was her inspiration. He was her public. There was no other public for her when he was present. Some weeks later, while she was paying a morning visit to a noble lady, a young gentleman entered the room, whom Piccolomini at once recognized. The lady presented her nephew. The confusion and more than wanted timidity of the youthful vocalist were inexplicable. After this, Piccolomini and the young Marquis de Gaetani often met in society. She quickly became aware that she had given him her heart on ask. Her native pride and her maidenly delicacy rendered her so fearful that he might divine her preference, a preference which he had never solicited, that she treated him with marked coldness. He, meantime, worshipped the glorious star at a distance, never daring to dream that its light could be shed on him apart from the crowd. Though he lived but in her presence, though he hung upon her words, though he followed her from city to city, he cherished no hope that he could ever rob the public of this idol and call it his own, and his lips remained sealed. 
years passed on and piccolomini received and refused the most brilliant offers of marriage and even her intimate friends imagined that her heart was untouched she was in love with her art they thought there was no room in her soul for any other passion she appeared in london and achieved a triumph that far surpassed all former successes in america also she created a genuine furor wherever she travelled she was accompanied by her family her father mother sister and brother surrounded her and they knew that the foot of a favoured lover never entered the magic circle during her visit to america she accidentally learned that the young marquis was about to be married the shock of this intelligence was so severe so violent that it broke the ice beneath which she had hidden her great love and in her anguish and despair she betrayed her secret to a friend this friend at once occupied herself in discovering whether the report of the marquis's engagement was true and found that it was a mere rumour the mystery hangs over her next steps but it is very certain that piccolomini no sooner returned to europe than the marquis became her accepted lover the mysterious mediumship of the confidant is more than suspected in a very brief period after her betrothal the lovely vocalist laid her laurels at the feet of her lover and exchanged her profession its excitement its inspiration its glories for a wife's devotion and a mother's joys few women famed or unfamed are so bounteously blessed she has a charming home the most tender and devoted of husbands three lovely children admiring friends without number she has youth health wealth beauty but but it is useless to deny a fact that is so apparent though she is happy though no one can doubt her happiness there are moments when she pines for her artist's life a sense of listlessness and of overwhelming idleness oppresses her her everyday existence does not rouse and stimulate her mind does not meet the requirements of her artistic nature even the victim of ennui often grows dull as with a surfeit of happiness when her talents are called into play for charities she suddenly revives a new soul seems breathed into her inanimate frame once more she is inspired she lives she is the piccolomini of old a few seasons ago her former manager mr lumley was in great tribulation on the brink of ruin piccolomini persuaded her husband to take her to london and to allow her to play an engagement for the benefit of her old director there can be no question of the double happiness she experienced the joy of serving an old and esteemed friend and the delight of once more revelling in the exercise of her great gifts speak of that engagement and her blue eyes fill with a lustre that rarely illumines them except when she is singing her whole face beams her lips grow tremulous and her words are broken by suppressed sighs the last time she appeared in public in florence was in november eighteen sixty four at a concert given in aid of the sufferers from the inundation she has always been subject to stage fright 
and this terrible nightmare is increased by even a brief retirement from the stage. On the occasion of which we speak, when she was summoned to appear, she trembled visibly from head to foot. She could scarcely breathe, and was seized with a violent palpitation of the heart. When she entered upon the stage, her agitation was so overpowering that she could hardly stand, and she had to grasp a piano, which stood near for support. She was to sing Donzetti's Affianado, and to be accompanied on the harp by her master, the distinguished Romanelli of the Pergola. Almost with the first notes she uttered, her terror vanished. The blood rushed back to her pallid cheeks and lips. Her eyes flashed and dilated. She stood erect, sublime in her inspired beauty. She sang with vehement passion. She had forgotten herself. She had forgotten all but her divine art. The music in her hand was crumpled, nearly torn by her nervous fingers. Her soul came down into her body and almost grew visible to mortal eyes. Her husband sat behind the scenes, not far from our own seat, and where we could watch his face. It was a picture worth studying. Even so, he must have looked in those days in Rome, when his eyes were fastened upon that unknown Piccolomini, who was now his wife. I have already given an account of the frightful inundation, and of the sufferers for whose relief Piccolomini was drawn for her seclusion, and her noble-hearted charity. End of chapter 13